Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rabincheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. We opened this past week with Traveler's second annual Threatened and Endangered Parks Package, a collection of stories that looks at issues that are degrading some of the very elements that justified the inclusion of some sites in the national park system. The series serves to spotlight threats that in some cases might be found at many parks and which, overall, are jeopardizing the integrity of the national park system. Contributor John Miles also wrote an essay that looks at the history of the Civilian Conservation Corps in the country and in the national park system, and why now, very well likely, is a good time to revitalize the concept of the Corps in the parks and on other public lands. And Jennifer Bain, Traveler's first-ever Canadian editor, began providing coverage of her country's national parks. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, our 100th podcast, we take a look at endangered and threatened species that call the national park system home and the legal battles that swing to and fro over gaining them Endangered Species Act protections. Joining me for this discussion is Noah Greenwald, the Endangered Species Director for the Center for Biological Diversity. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join wild tributes for the parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. It's not an understatement to say that the Trump administration's actions on public lands the past years kept lawyers busy. Whether the lawsuits were aimed at air quality or water pollution or wilderness or wildlife, there were more filed than can easily be counted. And they're not quickly or easily resolved either. Indeed, lawsuits that challenged President Trump's executive order to shrink the Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National Monuments still are pending. Wildlife issues alone kept lawyers busy, and to discuss some of those lawsuits, we've reached out to Noah Greenwald with the Center for Biological Diversity. Welcome to The Traveler, Noah. Oh, thank you, Kurt. Let's start with grizzly bears in the Yellowstone ecosystem, because they, they seem to annually be in the court system. Where do things stand with that issue? Yeah, so where things stand is that uh, the Trump administration moved to strip grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem of protections under the Endangered Species Act. And 
Um, we challenged that in court along with a number of other groups uh, represented by Earth Justice. And uh, at, the, at the very last minute, you know, this was looking, you know, late August of 2019, the, you know, Wyoming had sold tags to allow a trophy hunt of grizzly mm -hmm. bears. And um, we convinced the court that indeed grizzly bears still needed protection. And that's where it stands now is that, you know, the, the rule was sent back to the Fish and Wildlife Service to reconsider. And in particular, you know, I, I you know, I think, I think it's fair to say that grizzly bears have seen a lot of recovery in and around Yellowstone. You know, there's debates about whether they're at carrying capacity within that space or not. You know, I tend to think not, but there's no question that their numbers are up. But when you look at grizzly bears as a whole, which is how they're listed, they're listed as, you know, the grizzly bear in the lower 48, you know, they once stretched from, you know, the Canadian border down into Mexico from you know roughly the Mississippi all the way to the coast, you know, and they're they're in you know maybe four percent of their range. There was scientists believe there were at least fifty thousand bears in the West. There's you know roughly eighteen hundred to two thousand at this point. So I mean, when you look at that, when you look at the bigger picture, they're not even anywhere near recovery. And you know, even at a even at a smaller scale, you know, there's populations in Yellowstone and Glacier, what they call the um, North Continental Divide ecosystem. Those populations have grown and are doing relatively well. But the other populations that still survive, the Cabinet Yak, the Selkirks, the North Cascades, those populations continue to struggle. And there's no bears in the Selway Bitterroot, which is one of the recovery areas. And, you know, we've long thought they should look at other places as well, where there's still grizzly bear habitat, like the Sierra Nevada. So, mm -hmm. you know, from our perspective, there's a long way to go on grizzly bear recovery. Yeah, now when you're looking at the, the Yellowstone and the, the North Continental Divide ecosystems, um, are we seeing much progress in connectivity between those two ecosystems? I mean, there's, they're still isolated. There's, you know, there's been bears that have moved south and or north and they've gotten closer, but it's mostly been males and, you know, so it's, it's still a work in progress. And, you know, the, the Selway Bitterroot actually, you know, it's such a, it's a really large recovery area. If there were bears back in there, that would, that would make a big difference towards connecting existing populations. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned the North Cascades ecosystem, and of course, in December, we saw the center um, file a lawsuit to get that recovery program back on track. And it's kind of an interesting situation. With um, first, uh, the Interior Department was for it um, when Ryan Zinke was Interior Secretary, and then uh, David Bernhardt said, "No, we're not for it." And um, it seems to be ping ponging back and forth. Um, yeah, I mean, so the the story there is, you know, there's there's a a struggling small population in BC that straddles the border with North Cascades National Park, and you know, there's scattered sightings on the U.S. side, 
but maybe not a population. And so it's long been, you know, the recovery plan goal is to augment that population with bears probably from North Continental Divide or from Canada somewhere. And, and um, you know, actually the recovery plan called for them doing an EIS to do that by 2002. They hadn't done it. And then finally under the Obama administration, they started the EIS process. Um, and then, you know, Trump administration came in. Initially, you're, you're correct, Zinke, you know, indicated some support and then, you know, there's, there's, I'm forgetting his name, the representative in Congress from that area, Republican, he's been pushing hard against it and um, Bernhardt caved and they withdrew. And so we're, we're challenging that withdrawal and hoping to get that program going again. I mean, it would, it would be really significant. It would be the, you know, the first time that we've put bears back somewhere where they're mostly gone. I mean, they've they've moved bears into the cabinet yak from North Continental Divide um, and into the Selkirks, I believe, but they have existing populations and it's been to supplement those populations. This is more about, it's, I, d I don't wanna call it a reintroduction because it's technically an augmentation, but it'll be the closest thing to a reintroduction that will have happened so far, hoping that we get it back going. Yeah. Now, when when um, Secretary Bernhardt um, brought an end to the the latest effort, he he mentioned the local community was against seeing grizzly bears back in that ecosystem. Are there lessons learned in the the Yellowstone ecosystem and the, the North Continental Divide ecosystem um, in terms of living with grizzly bears that could be applied to uh, the North Cascades region? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's been a lot of work done on that. You know, like the the classic example would be like the Blackfoot Partnership, you know, where they, where that group, a nonprofit was essentially established to work on coexistence and, and uh, they've been working with, you know, a series of ranchers and, and to try and make that work. And then in terms of the recreation, you know, I think Denali, Glacier, Yellowstone, I think they've provided really good models of how you can have really extensive recreation with grizzly bear populations. You know, it's, it's, as you probably know, Kurt, it's more likely that you're going to get struck by lightning in Yellowstone than it is that you're going to get attacked by a grizzly bear. Yeah. Like the fact that there's, you know, a couple few million people that visit Yellowstone every single year. So yeah. I, mean, I think the recreation can be managed Livestock's got some challenges to it. You know, bears do sometimes take livestock and it takes some work. And it's it's similar to wolves in that sense of just, you know, some of the main opposition comes from ranchers. I know Defenders of Wildlife um, for years had a compensation program in the Yellowstone ecosystem for ranchers who could prove their livestock uh, was taken by by wolves. Um, I don't know if that program is still ongoing, but I also don't know if uh, ranchers um, in the North Cascades would uh, think that's a good trade-off. Yeah, I mean, there's there's those compensation programs are in place in a lot of states. You know, Oregon, where I live, has a compensation program for any livestock that are lost to wolves. You know, I I, I think that would 
I, I think that would be part of what was done in the North Cascades. And I, you know, I think that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another perennial um, species that seems to always be um, being batted back and forth in terms of ESA protection are wolverines. And uh, in December, um, I believe the center filed a lawsuit to try and get the Fish and Wildlife Service um, back on track with considering wolverines for either threatened or endangered status. Yeah, I mean, we've gotten Fish and Wildlife Service to the proposed stage where they acknowledge that they're warranted, but in the end, they, you know, pulled the plug and didn't protect them. You know, this is really a climate change impacted species. You know, they need they need uh, spring snowpack to den. And, um, you know, our snow is melting earlier and earlier in the spring. So, you know, if, if we don't get our emissions under control, we're not going to have wolverines and, you know, a lot of other things, uh, you know, in particular spring snowpack and the cold water that it provides to streams is really important for fish. So, I mean, I, I, I think the, the wolverine's a, a really good canary in the coal mine. And then, you know, to give it a shot, for surviving in climate change. You know, we have to be careful about what else we do in its habitat. And there's an increasing amount of evidence that winter recreation, um, snowmobiling, ski areas, um, those kind of things in their habitat has an impact. And so, you know, it's with climate change species, it's always hard to tell where where is that refugia gonna be, you mm-hmm. know. You know the the landscape that they select for is kind of amazing. I mean, what an amazing animal they, you know, when you look at their habitat requirements, it's like steep north facing slopes above 8,000 feet, you know, roughly speaking. So, I mean, they, they basically pick the winteriest places on the landscape. And um, you would think that would be pretty safe from, from intrusion from people, but it's surprisingly, you know, I, I think the growth in the snowmobile industry in particular and the the sleds people are using just can get further and further back there than they used to. And so it's, you know, there's a lot more intrusion than there used to be. And there's been a lot more research, even since our effort to get them protected has been ongoing. There's been more and more research showing that they're pretty sensitive. So you know, in addition to getting our emissions under control, we really need to provide them some shelter and protection so they have the best chance they they can to weather this. Yeah. Um, and of course, when you're talking about endangered or threatened species, it, we're not just talking about the charismatic megafauna. Um, I know down in the Grand Canyon National Park, there's the issue of the, the humpback chub and whether it should be listed. And uh, recently there was talk about... Um, white bark pine trees need to be listed. Um, so there, there are really quite a lot of issues, a lot of species out there that are in need of some sort of protection. Yeah, and, and the, the Trump administration has just been a disaster on that front. You know, only listed 25 species the whole four years, which is the worst record of any administration since the Endangered Species Act was passed. You know, for comparison, um, the Obama administration listed 360 species 
Um, and the Clinton administration listed uh, 523 species. And there's no shortage of species that need protection. In fact, Fish and Wildlife Service is sitting on a backlog of more than 500 species that are awaiting protection decisions. And so to see the Trump administration do so poorly and uh, keep so many species waiting was just uh, really frustrating. Yeah, I'm sure it has to be. We're talking today with uh, Noah Greenwald, the Endangered Species uh, Director for the Center for Biological Diversity about the Endangered Species Act and the the many species that uh, are in line or or hopefully in line to get some protection from that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Okay, we're back now with Noah Greenwald from the Center for Biological Diversity talking about endangered and threatened species. You know, we can talk about individual species, Noah. Of course, there also is a matter of changes the Trump administration made to the Endangered Species Act, and specifically to alter the definition of critical habitat. That's That's got to be a huge, huge change. Yeah, for sure. So in 2019, the Trump administration promulgated three rules that change how the Endangered Species Act is implemented and uh, you're, you're absolutely right. One of those relate to the definition of critical habitat. Essentially, what, what critical habitat does is it requires federal agencies to avoid adversely modifying critical habitat of listed species in actions that they fund, permit, or carry out. And uh, what they did is they defined adverse modification to say that only a, pro- a project would only adversely modify critical habitat if it affected the whole of critical habitat. 
And um, it's really a problematic definition for endangered species, particularly ones that have a, a wide distribution. So for example, the Northern Spotted Owl has over 9 million acres of designated critical habitat. And um, by this definition, there's, there's just really no clear cut. You know, you could clear cut, you know, the biggest old growth patch possible and it would still never affect the whole of that 9 million acres. So it really exposes listed species, threatened and endangered species to a death by a thousand cuts. And that's, that's often how species become imperiled in the first place. It's not one thing, it's, you know, it's, it's multiple things over, the, over time. It's, you know, multiple clear cuts, it's, you know, multiple dams and already under this theory they actually approved a dam in uh in outside of jackson mississippi in critical habitat for the gulf sturgeon and uh, it's another example you know the gulf sturgeon occurs from roughly mississippi to the florida panhandle and you know a bunch of rivers but it's you know it's it's really depleted within that range and dams are part of that story so that the last thing it needs is another dam. This is on the Pearl River, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Mississippi. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, attention being focused on the, the 30 by 30 um, proposal. Um, of course, uh, protect 30% of the globe, the world for, for nature by the year 2030. Um, I think E.O. Wilson would, would push it even farther to, to 50% of the world. And so we've got this awareness that, we're really making impacts to nature, um, whether it's uh, development, urbanization, um, or pollution that's affecting species. And I, I would think that the, the parks in some, the national parks could serve to help reach that goal and, and slow the sixth mass extinction by protecting the parks and protecting their ecosystems and, and seeing that they're not hemmed in. Is that uh, pretty much on track? That's absolutely right. And, you know, I, I, you know, in terms of the extinction crisis, scientists, you know, at the same time that the Trump administration is weakening the Endangered Species Act, you know, scientists from around the world have been raising the alarm bells about the extinction crisis. The, it's, it's the equivalent of the IPCC, which is, you know, the International Panel on Climate Change. The, the IPBES is the Intergovernmental Policy Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. It's a, it's a UN-convened body of scientists that, that is looking at extinction. It's part of the Convention on Biological Diversity, which the U.S. is one of the few countries that unfortunately has not signed on to at this point. Um, but they... Last year, they issued a report warning that as many as a million species are at risk of extinction in the coming decades. And, you know, that the whole idea of 30 by 30 and actually 50 by 50 is the idea is to address the extinction crisis and to protect biodiversity and ultimately to protect our way of life. And so I I think parks, you know, as areas that have strong protection for nature, those are kind of, you know, the part of what grounds us. I think parks and wilderness are sort of our starting place for getting to 30 by 30. And, you know, I, I think for the rest of public lands, if we're going to get there, we're going to have to protect 
the rest of public lands in a much more substantial way than we are now, as well as, you know, you know, get more uh, national wildlife refuges and, you know, protect some private lands as well. Like we're not gonna, we're not gonna get there with public lands alone, I don't think. Particularly in, you know, places like the southeastern US where there's really a lot of biological diversity. There's a lot of species, particularly in the rivers and streams, but there's not a lot of public lands and there's not a lot of protection. So, you know, that that has to be part of that 30 by 30. Yeah, and I guess the question is, or the one that I have is, how do we get the country behind such conservation? I mean, it seems that uh, we go in four-year sprints, um, either for protection or for development that that harms um, species. And as uh, the most recent uh, presidential election demonstrated, um, the United States is pretty divided um, in terms of... uh, uh, goals, for for lack of a better word, but um, is is there hope out there that uh, we we can get to, to thirty by thirty, or you know, increase uh, the number of landscapes we protect? I certainly hope so. I mean, I you know, one thing I would say that gives me hope is I I agree. I think the election highlighted that we're divided, but I think on that issue, on protecting nature, that's an issue that we're considerably less divided on than we are on other issues. I mean, I think the passage of the American Outdoors Act, I think that's, is that, is that what it's called? Is that the exact right? The American Outdoors Act, yeah. Yeah, that is right. Okay, good, the American Outdoors Act. Yeah. I mean, I think the passage of that highlights that fact that we're, on that issue, we're less divided. And I, I think polling shows that too, that you know, major, a majority of Republicans will say that they support the Endangered Species Act and that they, that they want to see endangered species protected. And so I, I, I do think there's hope in that sense, but you know, I, I think really we need to dedicate considerably more resources to it. And, you know, sometimes it, you know, it breaks down into this sort of jobs versus the environment dichotomy, which I, I think is really a false dichotomy because if we're going to address the extinction crisis, if we're going to, address climate change, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. And I think, you know, there's, we need more awareness of that, that, that restoration is key. You know, that I, I, I don't think people are aware enough of that, that land clearance, that cutting down forests, that plowing up the ground is, a, is actually a, a, a pretty giant source of emissions. Um, you know, almost comparable to um, burning fossil fuels. And so we, we need to restore the land if we're going to address climate change. And it's the same thing that species need. And, th- and that, that means jobs, you know, that those, there's restoration jobs that are needed and we should do. We just have to dedicate the resources to that. So I'm I'm hopeful that that happens, and I'm hopeful that we do a better job of protecting what doesn't need to be restored, what what still has a natural state. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's there's some hope in the what we saw this past year with uh, the COVID situation, and and people flocked to the outdoors. Um, they wanted to get out into to nature, and uh, so maybe maybe um, there's a lot of a lot of movement uh, overall to to see more nature protected. 
what does what does the legal landscape look like going into the Biden administration? Are, are some of these issues easily resolved by the new administration, or will we see this litigation drag on seemingly forever? Uh, well, we're certainly hopeful. You know, so we challenged those regulations in court, and that's we, along with Earth Justice and NRDC and Sierra Club and National Park Conservation Association. Um, all sued over those regulations, as did a number of states, and that's all in front of the same court in the, in, in California. And so, you know, the the administration, you know, has could could settle that litigation, you know, could agree to set those regulations aside. Um, so we're hopeful about that. You know, we um, we're going to be bringing a number. We have a lot of litigation over species that are waiting for protection. We have a suit in DC over more than 200 species that are waiting for protection decisions. We're likely to add to that in the coming few weeks. Um, so, you know, we're, we're hopeful to get listing of species back on track and get protection to species that need it, need it, which I think, you know, just highlights the need to protect more of nature. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful and the Biden administration certainly has the ability to, to fix some of these things and get us back on track. I'm, I'm heartened by Representative Deb Holland as the choice for Secretary of Interior. I think that represents a substantial shift from, you know, from Bernhardt, certainly, um, but also even, you know, from someone like Secretary Salazar at the beginning of the Obama administration, which, you know, you know, he supported energy development on public lands. And so yeah. I, I, I like to think that we're in a considerably different place than we were even at the beginning of the Obama administration. Yeah. Now, um, right before Christmas, uh, a bunch of groups um, called on uh, President-elect Biden to, to take action to confront the extinction crisis by signing an executive order that would declare the extinction crisis to be a national emergency. Any insights into the incoming administration and whether um, the president-elect uh, will get behind that? You know, I don't know if, I mean, it's all reading tea leaves at this point, Kurt, but it, I think there will be an executive order related to habitat protection and extinction on some level, whether it'll be, you know, everything we would want, you know, we, we would want, you know, the extinction crisis declared a, an emergency. That would be great. And maybe, maybe that'll happen. But I think at the very least, we're going to see an executive order perhaps related to 30 by 30. That's what I'm hearing. And that's my sense of it. I was pleasantly surprised by uh, appointment nomination of, of Representative Holland. And um, so perhaps I'll be pleasantly surprised by the executive orders that, that President Biden, President-elect Biden puts forward. Yeah, yeah. What, what would be served by declaring the extension crisis a national emergency? Well, I, I mean, I think it depends on what goes with that. If, you know, it's recognized as a, I mean, one, it'd be a great education tool. I think, you know, I mean, I, I think you can see this trajectory with climate that, you know, in the 
it, it didn't even rate a mention in the 2008 presidential debates, you know, up until, you know, and it kind of built where, you know, maybe it got a mention or two to the current election cycle where climate change became a pretty substantial issue. And I think, you know, extinction needs that same sort of attention. It needs, it should be on, I mean, it's from a, both from a, from a perspective of nature and from humanity, it should be on the same level as climate change. It, it, it really is as serious of a crisis. So I think declaring it a national emergency would do a lot to raise the profile. You know, hopefully that would come with some fairly substantial appropriations um, as well. And, you know, we'd see a lot of resources put behind the Endangered Species Act and, and protection of wildlife and nature. You know, right, right now, you know, for example, the budget that Fish and Wildlife Service has for recovery of endangered species is around $70 million, you know, which from a, from a federal government perspective is just a pittance. Mm -hmm. I mean, they spend more than that on a single fighter jet, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's given how serious the problem is, the resources and attention we're putting toward are just not commensurate. Yeah. Now, along with asking uh, the new administration to declare that national emergency, um, I, I see there was also a request that um, they create 175 new national monuments, national wildlife refuges, and national marine sanctuaries. That, that's a, a lot of designations. Is, is there a list out there that uh, identifies some potential ones? We don't have a list yet, but I, you know, I think that is, you know, if we're going to reach 30 by 30, that is what's needed. You know, we're going to need to designate a lot more national wildlife refuges and, you know, and, and that's, going to take, and that's why I say the resources is important. And, and that's what's good about the American Outdoors Act, because, you know, that's going to take some money, you know, in some cases, there are going to be private lands involved, and it's going to take purchasing land uh, in order to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. And again, it's, you know, for places like the Southeast, where there's not a lot of public lands, I, I think that's really important. Yeah, that, that, you know, when you go east of the Mississippi, you really do run into that problem with uh, not very many public lands that can uh, work in these situations. That's where you really have to get the, the private landowner invested in them. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's you know, the southeast, the richness is in the rivers. And, um, you know, you look at something like the Bankhead National Forest in Alabama, you know, the Mobile Basin has been called the Amazon of North America because of the species richness there, just the diversity of fish, mussels, crayfish. It's, it's unparalleled mm -hmm. as to the world, the diversity in the mobile basin. And, you know, when you look at where are there healthy watersheds, the, the bankhead, you know, rises to the top with the Sipsy Fork. And, you know, so it, it's really critical if, if we're going to save species. Yeah. Noah, thanks so much for joining us. It really is a, a, a big ask moving into the, the next administration, and it'll be interesting to see how much progress is made over the next four years. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. Thanks for giving time to this important issue. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Next week, we're taking a look at search and rescue in the national parks with a focus on that effort at Rocky Mountain National Park, which year after year conducts more SAR missions, as they're called, than just about any park in the national park system. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.